Please take a Bible in hand and turn to the New Testament letter by the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans. We're looking at Romans chapter 6 this morning. If you're using a Bible from the Purack, our passage is on page 942 this morning. Lord willing, for the rest of July on Sunday morning, we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 6. The sermon series is entitled, New Life in Christ. This morning, we will consider our new life united to Christ, looking at verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 6. Now, we can't spend all morning catching us up on how we got here in the book of Romans, but let me give you some quick reminders of the immediate context. In Romans chapter 5, in verses 1 through 11, we learn that justified believers live in the context of peace and reconciliation with God. That's in verses 1 through 11. That's justified believers. Now, if you're New to church, or not familiar maybe with the doctrine of justification, a good summary of what Paul has taught about the doctrine of justification in the book of Romans is found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 33, that justification is an act of God's free grace. He didn't have to justify anyone. And in doing so, he pardoneth all our sins. It is a legal decoration, a pardon of our past sins. But then he accepts us as righteous in his sight. But we have no righteousness to offer. How is that? Well, it's only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That when God looks at the Christian, he sees him as justified. He sees them as righteous, not based on what they have done, forgetting their past, but looking at the perfect life and obedience of Jesus in their place. Their past covered by his death, and then they're receiving his perfect record of righteousness. And how is it received? It's received by faith alone. Faith has not replaced works for the Christian. Faith is the instrument by which the believer is justified. And that's what Paul has taught. And so, in Romans 5, what are the benefits of justification? That in the midst of the life that is still filled with many difficulties and trials, the believer has peace with God now. But later in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, it says the justified are no longer under Adam's headship, but they are under Christ's headship. And so as death reigned over those in Adam, now life reigns by those who are justified and who are in Christ. And that brings us to Romans chapter 6. And what becomes evident and what Paul begins to unpack in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that the believer is living in the overlap of ages. That in Christ, 
There's resurrection power that we taste of now. That in Christ we have a foretaste of heaven, but yet we are still in a world that is under the dominion of sin because of Adam's fall. We are between the times. The already and the not yet. The overlap of ages. And so here in Romans 6, and what we'll look at, Lord willing, for the rest of July, is that in this time that we live, while we await Christ's return, what is the Christian's relationship to sin during the overlap of the ages? Before we hear God's word proclaimed and expounded, before it is read, let us ask for his help in prayer this morning. So please join me in prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, we have heard many words this week. We bring many things with us in our minds and our hearts into this worship service. We ask that your Spirit will work among us in such a way that our attention and our hearts will be fixed on your Word. And that by hearing and believing, we would receive Christ by faith and that you would use your word to shape us and to conform us into the image of our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name this morning, amen. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 6, the first 11 verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. That ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write eternal truth on all our hearts. There was a news story from the end of 2014. There was a couple that believed they were locked in a closet for over two days. They had broken into a building, 
and they thought someone was chasing them, and then they went to hide in a closet, and after two days of being in that closet, they called 911 asking for help and rescue. Well, as you might guess, this couple was under the influence of some chemicals, and when the police arrived, it turns out the closet wasn't locked. And they demonstrated to this couple. The police went in, closed the door, came right out. The whole time. 48 hours. Believing that they couldn't get out. Believing that they were stuck. Believing that they were locked in. I wonder how many of us Think of sin that way. That we believe that we are stuck in the same sin, never to be released. And that is our fate. Romans 6 has good news for us. John Owen said, the challenge of being a minister is this. There's two challenges. There's the challenge of evangelism. And John Owen said the challenge of evangelism is convincing those who are under the dominion of sin that they actually are under the dominion of sin. And then he said there's the pastoral challenge. The challenge to the Christian. The pastoral challenge being convincing those who are no longer under the dominion of sin that that is true of them. Persuading them that they are not under the dominion of sin. That's where Paul takes us here in Romans chapter 6. I have a simple outline for us this morning. Got three headings for us to consider the passage. In verse 1, I want us to go back and look at the objection and take some time to think about why this objection is raised in verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 10, I want us to see the indicative. The indicative in verses 2 through 10. And then in verse 11, I want us to see the first imperative. The objection is... In verse 1, what is the objection? Well, it's phrased as a rhetorical question. Paul, in presenting his gospel here, is anticipating those questions that might arise. What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? Leading up to here, he has covered the work of salvation. How the sinner is rescued from hell and brought to the Savior. In chapter 1 or so, into chapter 2 and 3, he talks about depravity. The depravity of sin that affects every person. He explains that because of our sinfulness, we have no works to contribute to our salvation, but our salvation comes through faith. And in doing so, he demonstrates the freeness of grace, making the case, particularly in, in chapters 
2 and 3, that we are not saved by keeping the law of God. And then in chapters 3 to 4, that we are saved by the instrument of faith, pointing us back to the example of Abraham and David and saying, this is how God has always saved people. Now think about that. You come to that being driven into your mind over and over again, clearly stated in flawless argument, we are not saved by keeping the law of God. And then at the end of Romans chapter 5, he culminates that saying this, basically, the grace of God is at its best when sin is at its worst. If you have your Bible still open, look back at Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Man, grace is at its best when sin is at its worst. And so, he's anticipating that some would come to him and say, Paul, if this is what you're teaching, what's the basis for holy living? What is the Christian ethic at this point? What is our moral standard? How then are we to live if our living does not contribute to our salvation in any way? There's no basis for keeping the law of God anymore, you said. Is that what you said, Paul? There's no ethical requirements. Maybe, Paul, do you realize you're incentivizing sinning? Because after all, you said the more you sin, the more grace you get. Are we understanding you correctly? That's the objection that Paul is anticipating. Maybe you've run into this uh, misunderstanding of the gospel, not as an objection, but as an embrace. We see it many times throughout history where people have misunderstood the gospel. I think of one uh, story that was shared with me from a friend who went to go share the gospel and do some witnessing to Christ in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Now, many of you, the only thing you know about the French Quarter is Mardi Gras and debauchery, and that's what you know. And anything that is displeasing to God, it is true, you can find there. But many Christians in Southeast Louisiana, and also people come from around the country to come and share the gospel as people come to New Orleans to party in the French Quarter. I remember a friend telling me that he was trying to lead someone to Christ, and this guy knew enough of the gospel to get it all wrong. And his damning response was, Jesus died for our sins. I don't want to let him down. Is that what Paul is leading us to? The theological term is antinomianism. Nomos, the Greek word for law, anti-law of God. And as we consider it, this is a fair objection. If the letter of Romans ended with Romans chapter 5, then this would be a fair objection to Paul's gospel. There's no penalty for sin. There's no penalty for past sins, present sins, or future sins. 
Holiness is not a prerequisite for justification. We do not in any way contribute to our justification. This is all true. So if the letter ends here, are we left with antinomianism? If justification is the only thing taught about salvation, we shouldn't be surprised if believers end up in the ditch of antinomianism. And I want to be sensitive. I know that there are people here, you grew up in strict religious homes. And the Christian life for many decades was defined by performance. And then at some point in your life, you came to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it set you free from living on a legalistic treadmill. And justification by faith is so precious to you. And it should be. It should be for all of us. And now that you're off the legalistic treadmill, you have to figure out what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? You know the precious relief that you do not contribute anything to your salvation. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation as it's been said, is the sin that made salvation necessary. But it lingers in the back of your mind, and as you scour the Scriptures, that your God cares about personal holiness and righteous living. How are these things reconciled? We can never downplay justification by faith alone. Martin Luther said, it is the doctrine by which the church either stands or falls. Calvin declared, it is the hinge of the Reformation. You cannot properly understand salvation without a right understanding of justification. What we see is that there is more to salvation than justification. We must emphasize justification We must be enthusiastic, and we must celebrate it to the point that it raises the objection of verse 1. And yet, we need to see that salvation is more. We need to champion all that the Scripture teaches concerning the Christian life. We must seek to embrace all the counsel of God as it is revealed and proclaimed to us in the Scripture. We are to be excited about justification and excited about sanctification. Now, just think about it. If you've been around church, that really doesn't typically go together in the way people speak about sanctification. Sanctification being our growing in holiness, our increasing in righteous living, walking in obedience becoming more like Christ. But I think what we have here in Romans 6 is the fuel to help us get excited about progressive sanctification. In the big picture, before we really dive into the indicative here in verses 2 through 10, I want you to understand, salvation comes from being united to Jesus Christ. 
Justification, to use the language of the Westminster Standard, is a benefit of that union. So the overarching category of what is salvation is being united to Christ, and with that union comes justification and sanctification. The three benefits that are laid out in the Westminster Standards particularly are justification, adoption, and sanctification. And it's, it's kind of following the argument of Romans, establishing what is justification in Romans 1 to 5, and then beginning to think through sanctification in Romans 6 and into 7 and into 8, and then the joy and the privilege of adoption in Romans 8. See, it's in verses 2 through 10 that Paul explains to us that because of our union with Christ, antinomianism is not an option for the Christian. We are not free to live however we want because of the good news of being united to Christ. And because of our union with him, we have a never-ending supply and source for holy living. So let's dive into the indicative there. Look back at verse 2 with me. There's an exclamation point. By no means. Now, if we're not careful, Paul's response to his rhetorical question in the objection in verse 1, by no means, kind of sounds, you know, sophisticated. It would be more appropriate or just as appropriate to paraphrase where he's just saying, no way. You're missing something. To assert that the Christian is free to sin in order that grace may abound, you have misunderstood something that is vital to the gospel. And so it goes to lay it out. What is the indicative? Well, it's stated in another rhetorical question in the second half of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the indicative. He's saying the Christian is one who is in the category of those who have died to sin. Well, you say, how did we die to sin? Well, in verses 3 to 5, he lays out his thesis. And his thesis is this, is that when you became a Christian, you were united to Christ. And so for, from that point on, his death to sin is your death. His life is your life. If we are in Christ, we die to sin. If we are in Christ, we are alive to God. His death is our death. His resurrection gives us power to live the Christian life. That's his thesis. And then later in verses 5 through 10, he's expounding that thesis for us. Now, how does really Paul make his point? Well, it's in terms of using, in our English translation, it's helpful. It's, it's pulling out what's there in the original. It's a new preposition that he's adding to our understanding of salvation. Quite often, and rightly, when we think of the work of redemption, we rightly emphasize what Christ did and for us. What Christ did for us. But now, 
Paul is adding to it another preposition, if you would, for us to understand the work of Christ on our behalf. It is the word with. So glance with me in verse 4. We are buried with him. Verse 5, united with him in a death like his. Verse 5 again, united with him in a resurrection like his. Our old self crucified with him. Verse 6, verse 8. We have died with Christ. Verse 8, we live with him. The gospel proclaims that Christ died for sinners and that those who trust in his work on their behalf, his death becomes their death. His life becomes their life. We know when he died for sins, roughly around 33 AD, when he died for sin. But when did we die? Well, it was when we came into union with him. Now, how does the Apostle Paul drive that point home? How does he pull it out? Well, he begins with pointing us to the doctrine of baptism. Look back there at verse 3. There, once again, stated as a question, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Why is Paul bringing up baptism at a time like this. His point is not that in the act of baptism, we died. And maybe you were taught, and I would assume that plenty of us were taught this uh, in years past, that baptism was our watery grave. That when we decided to follow Jesus, we stood up and said, I'm going to lay down my old life in this grave and come up to a new life. But that is only a symbolic death, if you would. Paul is talking about an actual death to sin. He's not saying that baptism portrays and gives us a ritual to die to sin. It's pointing us to our union with Christ because baptism is the sacrament of identification with Jesus. That's what baptism is. We believe the message that God has given in baptism. It's not predominantly our message to God in the world. It is God is telling us something of the gospel in baptism. Baptism, it's the sign and seal of our cleansing and our engrafting into Christ. When we died to sin, it happened when we were united to Christ. And baptism displays that for us. It symbolizes the promise of being severed from Adam and united to Christ. It illustrates the promise of the gospel that all that was from Adam will be washed away and all that is Christ now belongs to us. Baptism is the promise of our union with Christ. And if you're united to him, you're united to his death and his life. It's a union with his death that has broken the power of sin. It is a union 
with his life that gives us the power to live in obedience. Now, let's look closely here at verses 6 through 7. Here it lays out in step-by-step what has happened in being united to Christ. The first thing in verse 6, look back there. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Now, what does it mean, our old self? Does it just mean the you when you used to be in a fraternity or you before you became a Christian? You're, does it just refer to the days where you're you know, sowing your wild oats or living out just apart from all that you knew that was right and true? Is that the old self that is referenced here? In context, the old self here is you in Adam. You in Adam has been crucified. And so what does this mean for us? Well, we are to think of ourselves as new in Christ. The old is dead. So properly, the Christian, we don't think of having two selves. Isn't that sometimes the trap in sanctification? Is that we feel like there's a battle between two things within us? In fact, I heard it explained one time that you have two dogs in you. And whichever one you feed, that's going to be the stronger dog, and that will win the fight. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is that the old you that was in Adam is dead. has been crucified with Christ. The person you were in Adam, that person is no more. That's a fact. It's part of the indicative. Indicative is a statement of fact. And then we see later in that verse, the second part, what was the purpose of this crucifixion? At the, the next phrase there that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin is not making a statement saying that to have a body is sinful. It is the acknowledgement that we are embodied creatures who live in a fallen world. And when we were in Adam, we sinned with this body. And so this body does contain the presence of sin. It contains the ability to sin. But in this body now, there is resurrection power that is pointing to the day when we will put down the body of sin and have glorified bodies and minds incapable of sinning. The Greek word here for brought to nothing is not to annihilate. When we were crucified with Christ, the body of sin was not annihilated, but the word means made inoperable, or better said, no longer able to exercise authority. Its power over us has been disabled. Then the result being, at the end of verse 6, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Sin has no legitimate claim to the Christian. It is not saying that sin is destroyed. We live between the ages in a body of sin awaiting glorified, resurrected bodies. What it's saying is that we are freed from having to live under the influence and the impact of being in Adam. It's saying that we are no longer citizens of sin's kingdom. Did you notice that's how the apostle is speaking about sin in chapter 6? It is in the singular. Normally, in the, his letters, he talks about sins, plural, sins committed, but here he is personifying sin. He's giving us the picture that it used to have authority and reign over you, but not anymore. And he goes so far in verse 7 then to say that because of our death with Christ, we are free. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, I know what everyone just did. You saw that there is a footnote, and you said, what's the footnote for free from sin? And so you went down, and you looked at the, the bottom of the page or the side of the page in your Bible, and it says, has been justified. So the passage could be read, for the one who has died has been justified from sin. This is unique phrasing for Paul. He doesn't speak in this way in any of his other letters. But I think our English Standard Version translation has got it right in translating free. How is the language of justification being employed here? Well, here in Romans 6, he's no longer dealing with the guilt of sin, but the reign of sin. And so, right now, he's talking about sin reigning over us as, like, as we're in its kingdom. Later in Romans 6, sin is personified as a slave master that dominates those who are in Adam. In another section of Romans 6, sin is described as a military general deploying our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. At the close of Romans 6, sin is personified as an employer paying the wages of death. And here, the point that Paul is making, he's saying that when you were justified, yes, the guilt was removed, but also the dominion of sin was removed. How does justification affect the power of sin and not just the penalty? In Adam, you were condemned. And because of each of our sins, we were condemned. And that condemnation came with shackles. Shackles that we deserved legally because of our rebellion against God. It was the right sentence that even before we would suffer eternally for these sins, that in this life, because of sin, we would be shackled to sin. But now, having been justified, a necessary consequence of that legal declaration is that the shackles have to come off. That they no longer belong to the believer. Therefore, we are dead to the reign of sin. And as it fills out from verse 8 through 10, 
Now, the same power that raised Christ from the dead gives us power to live new lives united to Christ. That's the indicative. Christian, the Bible teaches us to kill the deeds of the flesh. But it is a fact that if you are in union with Christ, his death to sin is your death to sin. And so from there comes the first imperative of Romans chapter 6. The first imperative of Romans chapter 6. It's followed by several more in verses 12 through 14. This morning, we only will look at verse 11 as it is a summary statement applying all that the apostle has said of us in Christ. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here is the first imperative of Christian living. It's know the indicative. That's the first command of living as a disciple. Know what Christ has accomplished and is once and for all death for atonement and when you are united to him, how his death has become your death. Know that. Know that this is the consequences of being united to Christ. It is know the gospel and then in that knowing, begin to develop a gospel self-image. Sinners saved by grace. We still are battling sin, but the power of grace is greater. Developing a gospel self-image. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not think your way into being dead from sin. It is an accounting. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. There is an equation. There's a calculation to be made. It is true of you. And the apostle says the first imperative of walking in holiness is let this sink into your bones. And let it be the way that you understand yourself now. Will the Christian still sin? Yes. Remember, the point that the apostle's making here is not to make the case that the Christian will never sin, that we have entered into impeccability. He's refuting antinomianism, the Christian's freedom to sin in order that grace may abound. And there are more imperatives to follow. What is true is to be put into in practice. The imperatives imply that there needs to be growth in this. It's kind of like this. Once a man becomes a man, he is no longer a child. You know, we can think of many illustrations on, on what has changed for the believer. We could talk about being brought from one citizenship to another. We could talk from, and we will later in Romans 6, about being under a different master. But this one is helpful to understand that 
once you became a man, you can't unbecome a man. Once you reach an age of maturity, you can't go back and, and become a second grader again, third grader, or fifth grader, seventh grader. It's impossible to do so. Now, now that you became a man, you may still have the sense of humor of a junior higher. And you may still act in immature ways. But it's not according to who you really are. You are to leave those things behind. It's who you once were. So yes, the Christian can behave like who they once were. It's part of the already and the not yet. That the fullness of our salvation comes when Christ returns. So will the Christian still sin? Yes. Is the Christian free to sin? No. That is not the freedom that we received in Christ. Grace does not make you sin more in order that there could be more grace. To be clear, grace makes you sin less. When the Christian does sin, they are never allowed to say, I couldn't help myself. That is devaluing what has come to them through Christ. Those of you, if you feel completely free to sin, and maybe you have come up with theological justifications and a misappropriation of the gospel and justification, if you feel free to sin, you most likely are not a Christian. Every Christian will be tempted at some point to antinomianism, but God keeps us from going full antinomian. He says so in Hebrews 12, that the Heavenly Father, every child he receives, he lovingly disciplines all of them. If you feel no tinge of conscience, no conviction for sin, and completely free to do so, Come to Christ today. Recognize that you are still in Adam and under the dominion of sin. If you've been baptized and yet you feel free to sin, your baptism calls you to faith and repentance. Don't be mistaken. We are not free to sin because of grace but because of abounding grace, the abounding grace of God that has brought us into union with His Son, we are no longer obligated to obey, to serve, and to live under the dominion and the reign of sin. Let us pray. O Lord and our God, thank you for your condescension in the Son.
that you would pay the price for our sins and then you would unite sinners like us to our Lord and Savior. This morning, as we come to the table, we come in faith. We come with the confidence that we are justified and that we belong to Christ. So we ask in the sacrament this morning that you would reinforce this in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.